Welcome to Pod for Teacher. I'm Aaron Fitzpatrick. I'm Nate Langelli. And I'm Brad Baldwin. Today is our uh, special Election Day episode, but uh, with Election Day coming up, that must mean Halloween is right around the corner as well. Do you guys have any mm. exciting uh, Halloween plans or I anything? Should I be? I, I should probably be more excited about voting than Halloween, but I love candy, so I'm pretty stoked about Halloween. Uh, my girls are going as uh, the Incredibles. I'm not sure exactly which characters yet. I myself am not dressing up because I'm a terrible father, but they're going to have some fun. It's going to be a downpour, I believe, and... Uh, Candy, perhaps. I don't know. We'll Brad, see. Brad and I still think you're incredible. So oh. for what it's worth. <laughs> well, Aaron does. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And uh, as a side note, talking about my kids, my one and a half year old, she sat on the potty and pooped for the first time the other day. So for all our lovely listeners out there, we it all was poop. a big day in the Langelli household. A big day for everybody. So we're, we're excited, though, about the candy. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> well, this is, uh, this is my, speaking of kids, this is my niece's first Halloween. So... Uh, the rest of my family and I are heading over to my brother's house to see what kind of outfit they're going to dress my niece up in. I'm kind of excited for that. Um, are, you, yeah. are you going to dress up yourself? Uh, I don't know. I don't know yet. I guess we have to I guess see where that goes. Okay. And I'm just excited to pass out candy. It's been a while since we've been able to do that, so I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of kids come out in the neighborhood. And carve a pumpkin tonight or tomorrow you're lying you're not excited to see all those kids I at am. your house no you're oh, not. i love halloween you're not, get out <laughs> i used of to here. love scaring them yeah. <laughs> my wife won't let me do that anymore how do you, let me, now this could be controversial how do you feel about teenagers trick-or-treating because when i was a teenager that was kind of you know i mean like, i did uh, it i wasn't well, proud of myself you're a few years younger but than candy's us. expensive did you have a beard when you were a teenager <laughs> i shaved <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, back to, I guess, the topic of hand, election stuff, is that what Or Halloween. Here, here we go. Our, our rationale, bell ringer, if you will. Uh, let me throw out a disclaimer, because uh, today's bell ringer is not aimed at the captain of our ship in any way, shape, or form. But put yourself out here. You ever work somewhere and think that your boss has absolutely no clue how to run your company? Well... <laughs> Can education policy effectively be drafted by those outside of our schoolhouse gates? That's what we're looking at today. That's going to be our essential question. So we'll be right back after this word from Eddie Vedder. I'm questioning my education Is my education All right, we're back. So to answer our essential question, let's take a look at some of the reform that's taken place and is taking place in, on the state level right here in Pennsylvania. A law signed by Wolf in 2016 delayed the use of Keystone exams as a graduation requirement until the 2019-20 school year. Senate Bill 1095 delays the use of Keystone exams until the 2021-2022 school year. The tests have been administered each year in order to satisfy federal guidelines that require students to submit data on students' academic achievement. Preparation for the 21st century success cannot be measured by just performance on high-stake tests, Governor Tom Wolf said in a statement. In an economy which demands multiple skill sets and includes varying educational pathways to good-paying jobs, students should have multiple ways to demonstrate that they are college and career ready. In June 2017, Wolf, at, Wolf signed Act 6 into law, which would allow students taking classes at career and technical education centers to replace the Keystone exam with industry-based competency certification. In order to graduate under the new law, students must complete course requirements established by their local schools in addition to any of the following. Showing proficiency on the SAT, PSAT, or ACT tests, pass an advanced placement or international baccalaureate exam, complete a dual enrollment program, complete an apprenticeship program, get accepted to an accredited four-year nonprofit institution of higher education, complete a service learning project, secure a letter of full-time employment, or achieve an acceptable score on work keys assessment, an exam administered by the ACT, which assesses workplace skills including math, reading, comprehension, and applied technology. That, that was a lot there. That was a lot. That, that was a lot. But ultimately, I think, we, we, in my mind, I, I enjoyed the, enjoy might be a weird word, but anyway, I like the fact that it's moving just from, like, here's a test, here's this, to allowing the kids to maybe achieve other things or show that they're proficient in this area or they're succeeding in other areas. 
because like everybody says, you know, everybody learns differently, they show growth differently, and so having this opportunity just to say, yeah, okay, I might not do well on this Keystone biology exam, but hey, look, I'm an interning at this place and I'm doing great. And so kind of saying, okay, you know, students, we're all different people, so they have different opportunities to show that off, and at least that's something that I like about it. I'm a huge fan of this, I really am. I think that for so long, students haven't been uh, prepared for their careers or out of high school. I know I wasn't. It really wasn't until college that I started learning some of those skills and, and focusing on like what I want to do. I didn't I didn't take career surveys or anything in, in high school. How about you guys? Uh, not that very, I recall. Very very little. And you know, and and I'm not looking at this even like this is the cure all that we need that's going to solve all of our problems right. in no, education. No. But it certainly seems to be a step in the right direction as far as providing a, a, a more of a variety of evidence for. Um, what a student knows and what they're capable of doing, um, something that a, that a simple standardized test couldn't show. Right. And something, this is, doesn't really apply at all to our topic, but anytime we talk about policy and federal policy, we can talk about this maybe in another episode, but the idea is, you know, constitutionally, the federal government has no jurisdiction over education, right? And so the Constitution says it should be left up to the states and all this other stuff, but because of money, right? Everything's attached to money. Federal government says you do this, if you don't do it, then you don't get the funding for it. And so I think there's a lot of pressure then that is put on states to say, yeah, we got to comply and do this if we want to receive the funding for said thing. And I don't know if that's the best way to go about it either. Um, but I just think there's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, you know, from the federal down to the state, and then from the state then to meet the others down to the local. And so it's, I don't know, there could be a better way of going about it. But at least so this step seems to be at least a step in the right direction to try and help that out. Right, at least it's focusing on the students. Right, yeah. So, um, in, in kind of digging into this topic a little bit, um, we were asking each other and, and uh, colleagues that we had, you know, what, what are the educational backgrounds of our elected officials, the folks that are responsible for kind of uh, laying out some of this policy that affects us all, affects us all as, as educators and affects our students in a big way. Um, and uh, not surprising that very few of them actually have backgrounds in education. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at where some of these folks come from. Um, on the state level in Pennsylvania, Pedro Rivera, our Department of Education Secretary, um, actually does have a, a background in education. He was an administration from Cheney University. It's one of the state schools here. Um, uh, John Eichelberger, he's a, the chairman of the Education Committee, uh, Political Science. Andy Dinneman, Education Committee. Um, Looking like uh, he does have a, has a doctorate in education from Penn State. Uh, David Hickernell, chairman of the education committee on the House side of things in PA, bachelor's in psychology. James Roebuck, uh, state house representatives, um, is an educator professionally. So we get a little bit of a mix there, but again, uh, we have some people in some high 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 up positions there that that do not have any sort of background in education. Um, then we took a look at even the, the framers of some of these major, major groundbreaking uh, policies like No Child Left Behind and the Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, no Child Left Behind was drafted by John Boehner, George Miller, Judd Gregg, and Ted Kennedy, um, none of whom have an, any sort of background in education uh, to speak of. The Every Student Succeeds Act, Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Patty Murray from Washington, John Klein from Minnesota. Um, only Patty Murray had, a, had any sort of background in education. She was actually a preschool teacher and then a, uh, a, a physical education teacher. Um, but again, a pretty, pretty mixed across the board. Very few people uh, with that background. And then it kind of comes back up to the, to the, the top dog in, in education, our U.S. Department of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. Uh, private high school, private college, zero background in education. Her Bachelor's of Arts was in business economics. Um, so kind of get back to what Nate said. I, I, again, I, uh, I can't say that any of that would come as a surprise to, to any of us or any of our colleagues or even maybe you, the listener. Um, but all we're, all we're trying to maybe allude to here is the fact that maybe um, some of these sweeping reforms should come from folks that um, know what it's like on the front lines, know how it affects our students, and know what uh, know what the outcomes um, might be that they're looking to achieve. I'll be honest, I was I was surprised. I didn't know any of this until we did some research. But I mean, I'm all for a well-rounded point of view in education, as long as we keep the students in mind and we don't focus on the money and and 
trying to reform everything to put our name on it and and I don't know it's it's a tough it's a <laughs> it, it, it makes me think in, in terms of like sports and stuff like how effective are you as a coach if you've never played the sport yourself you know like yeah. how likely are this, that your your um, athletes in order to follow and listen to what you have to say if you don't have any background in it now I know you can't have everybody in education all the time making all these decisions but if, if maybe there are more you know like people say like how often do they go and visit schools not just not just for cameras you know but actually spend quality time in the districts in the classrooms talking to educators talking to families talking to administrators talking to school boards like I don't know all that stuff you know I'm hoping I'd, I I have hope low expectations that happens often but I'm hoping that it happens more but that'd be nice I just want, we just want even if you don't agree with it if it's being made if these policies are being made by people who actually have experience or have people that have experience like sharing like Okay, that's a little different, I think. And that's not even to suggest that these folks that are in charge of these programs or these committees or whatever are not well-meaning. No, um, a not lot at all. Of, a lot of these programs, including No Child Left Behind, which Nate's going to talk to you about here briefly, looks great on paper. A lot of these policies and reform ideas like look great on paper. Um, it's, it's in practice that we find some of the flaws in the system, and that's, and that's what we're kind of talking about here. Yeah, and going back to the No Child Left Behind, there was a story in the Washington Post published back in March of 2015, and they basically say, okay, if standardized testing, if we're falling behind as a nation, okay, let's compare. Pre and post, uh, No Child Left Behind, the early 2000s there. And so here are some key findings that this article uh, put out. Um, that the rate of progress, there's a NAEP, that's like the, one of the main um, evaluation tools that is used um, by the government to evaluate education across the country that in grades four and eight, uh, that the progress was ge uh, generally faster in the decade before No Child Left Behind took effect. Uh, that it is consistent trend both overall and for individual demographic groups, including um, African Americans, ELL students, and students with disabilities. Score gaps in 2012 were no narrower and often wider than they were in 1998 and even back to 1990. So they're just t trying to say like, 2012, we were looking more, roughly 10 years or so after the implementation of No Child Left Behind, that the scores were that much better than early 90s, later 90s. Um, they're saying that in many cases, the rate of gain slowed even more after 2007. Score gain slowed after No Child Left Behind for English language learners, while score gaps increased between ELLs and non-ELLs. In three or four grade tests, um, scores for students with disabilities flattened or declined with gaps um, for, well, gaps remain for different groups in America as well. The idea is that the scores aren't improving. The scores, it, it's frustrating. The idea, some people are succeeding, yes. Some people, but overall, there's nothing like systematic, systematically it's saying that these tests are showing great growth in our students across the board. Whether it's um, students with disabilities, not disabilities, whatever demographic you're looking at, some areas these numbers have gone down from the early 90s um, to today. Uh, they're saying ACT scores have been flat since 2010 for all demographic groups. Um, so the idea is how much focus should we be putting on these standardized testing? That's, that's the idea behind it, and they're trying to argue that maybe we shouldn't be as heavily focused as we've been in the past. And it goes back to what you're saying, Brad, that this law that's being put in effect, maybe there's now other ways to go about it. Maybe we don't need to focus so heavily on it. So that was just some of the research that was put forth by that article in 2015. I mean, we, we can all agree as teachers and educators in today's society that Change is essential, it is, but I think it's also essential to look at what's wrong, what's going on here. Is it, is it the policy, is it the students, is it the teachers, or are we doing enough of that? Like you went back to being inside of the classroom, seeing how things work. It, I think that's a huge question we should all ask. Is, is that being done enough? Yeah, because ultimately, no child left behind, every student succeeds at, like, those are great ideas, right? And we yeah. all want that, that's all we're hoping for, but is this, is the implementation of those ideas, is that being effective? And at least according to this article, looking at just the raw scores, it hasn't been as effective as we were hoping for. Um, but we all want the same thing. I'm hoping we all want the same thing. Right? We, we do want everybody to succeed. We want everybody to thrive. We want everybody to do great. Um, but what's the best way of going about it? And so I guess the my main concern is these decisions being made by people who might not have as much information within the field as could be. Now I can't speak for them personally, but it would be great if they did have that experience. Or uh, or. Or we're open-minded enough to <coughs> offer a seat at the table to right, those sure, with, with sure. the experience, right. for sure. Yeah, at least having people there that have been there to hear their ideas and stuff, yes. Sure. Maybe there are. I mean, maybe, maybe right. they do, but... I don't know. <laughs>
Well, when we come back, uh, we're going to be sitting down with technology education teacher, head golf coach, assistant bas basketball and track coach, and our local union president, Mr. Tom Hickey. Pod for Teachers, the brainchild of Aaron Fitzpatrick, Nate Langelli, and Brad Baldwin, and is produced in their personal capacity. Opinions expressed on this podcast are the hosts and guests' own and do not reflect the views of Freedom Mary High School or the Freedom Mary School District. Any account of this podcast without the written consent of Betsy DeVos is strictly prohibited. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are joined by our esteemed colleague, one Mr. Thomas Hickey. <laughs> and I have heard, like we were mentioning earlier, um, that Fitz used to coach, but now this gentleman has taken over the reins, and the program is soaring now, I think. I, I, is that a fair assessment, Fitz? I would say so. I mean, like, I think I think he saw me golf a couple times and thought, "Well, if that guy is going to get a paycheck for <laughs> coaching coaching golf and pretending to be some sort of expert, I can certainly step in and do it." I much did better learn very quickly the skill level of the coach has nothing to do with. It. <laughs> so that, well, was, uh, that explains some of our success in my years as coach. <laughs> yes, and then the, I, I'm not sure why the team isn't as good now because I'm clearly a better golfer. Than that. <laughs> My players, not so much. No, no, to, be, from, on it. to be fair, I've golfed with both of you, and you're both better than me. So that's all. That's all. <laughs> that's really a bar to get up. <laughs> um, but anyway, our first question, I guess, we could ask you, sir. Thanks again for joining us. How long in education have you been? Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan. Of the, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Don't lie to the audience, Tom. Don't lie to these people. I thought I could keep a straight face through. All that. <laughs> Unfortunately, not. How did you know? <laughs> but, I have, but I have, uh, I've listened to quite a few of your episodes, so I'm, uh, I'm very impressed, that, which is one of the reasons I'm willing to be here oh, today. This isn't even a question, I just have to, I have to know, it is a question, but it's not a planned question. After the dressing down, well, maybe that's a little too, that's a little too harsh. After, <laughs> after the constructive criticism you had for us, just upon learning that we were doing a podcast, before you knew anything that it was going to, you know, what it was going to be about, how we were going to handle the thing, have we, have we at least met the expect, the very low expectations that you had had for us from the outset? <laughs> well, I didn't dress anybody down. <laughs> it was constructive criticism. Well, my concern at the time for you guys was... The, the challenge it was going to be to get an audience and whether your time and effort that you were going to put into it was going to be worthwhile other than just you were going to enjoy doing it or you wanted to do it. Oh, yeah, we have three very loyal listeners sure. at this point. Uh, <laughs> just three? Just three? Maybe four. Do we count, are we I'm counting sure ourselves I'm, as listeners? I'm sorry. Uh, we were. Yeah, 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 I'm sure everyone who's on listens, and then maybe a relative or two. So you have family <laughs> well, and friends. To be fair, my own wife doesn't listen. So I'm, I'm this a, is true. Yeah, this is it's, true. It's well, I have listened. She'll be there. She'll get there. <laughs> maybe. I have listened because I, I do enjoy a podcast, and so I've listened. Um, and I found them to be somewhat interesting. <laughs> that's, a, um, that's about as glowing. I was going to say, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. a glowing, glowing. But it's a, it's hard to, um, I think, break new ground in the podcast arena. And I do listen to, uh, for instance, I listen to some of the Bill Simmons stuff, and uh, they're they're entertaining. Um, but even those, after a while, become repetitive in terms of their structure. And uh, he's a great dancer. In terms of the, uh, never, even, never even the content that. starts to uh, become redundant in some ways. So I think it's hard. It's a hard medium, and it's a hard uh, medium to get an, a loyal audience and to be cutting edge and creative. And that's why I think the things that are most successful are the serialized podcast where it's eight and done. You know, the story is told and it's over. Is this our eighth episode? Maybe we're are we done after this? It might be eight, is it? We're close to eight. Are you? Well, maybe your arc, you're on the arc. And our, shelf life, uh, our, our shelf life's about to expire. Yeah. Well, we came in so excited and all of a sudden, poof. Just like, well, I didn't we, mean to, to dash your hopes and well, dreams. Maybe, it'll, maybe we'll incorporate puppets or accents into our, our uh, shtick. Video's the future, I think. So. <laughs> well, not maybe, for these faces. Okay. Well, maybe Brad's, but. <laughs> Everybody's going video. Yeah. But, uh, well, back to back to the question. So, how long how long have you been in public education? Public education, uh, twenty two years public education, and I have, uh, in some ways, and I'm sure there's a lot of teachers similar, but I've taught in a uh, 
two Catholic schools, I've taught in a private school, and I've taught in a vocational technical school. And I substitute taught briefly, and then 22 years in, or 22 years in public ed. So I have seen it from a lot of different perspectives, and I've also taught uh, from grades five through 12. So I've seen a lot of different grade levels as well. If I wasn't already intimidated by this man, now he goes and lists all these accomplishments. My goodness, I feel so inadequate. We, we call him, we lovingly call him the dean for a reason. Yeah, the, the dean of all, the dean of all. So in I'm your, sure there's a reason, I'm just not sure what it is. So in, in, your, in your vast array of experience, Mr. Hickey, mm-hmm. concerning policies for public education, education in general, any major trends that you've seen over the time in your, in your experience? that have kind of stuck out to you? I think uh, in the, in the, mostly in the public ed arena, but even going back to um, the earlier years when I was in the Catholic and the private schools, um, accountability in student learning has always been at the forefront of um, expectations as far as what goes on in schools. So at the, in those early days, it would mostly just be the, the achievement test that you would take once a year. And that was considered somewhat important, but there was not a, a, a huge um, emphasis in those days. But over time, um, probably going back 15 years, around the No Child Left Behind emergence, and then accountability of schools, and accountability in teachers, and accountability in students, um, it seems like the, the testing has become uh, a, a huge impact and has had a huge impact on what goes on in schools. And I think what they're trying to do is hold people accountable for the tax dollars that are spent in the process. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, but I'm just not sure that because testing is easy and in some ways economical to get kids a standardized test and then use that to determine success, that um, that's actually the most uh, reliable way to do it. And I would only say that because as a classroom teacher, you see all different kinds of ways that kids learn and kids grow. And to try to measure that on a once a year test or um, a subject area test uh, that's, that's uh, intended to evaluate a student's performance, uh, I'm not sure that always gives you uh, the best analysis of how successful they are or have been in what you've been doing in the classroom. So I think that would be kind of the overriding theme over these last 20 years is testing as the accountable measure. So you've mentioned the No Child Left Behind Act. Mm-hmm. Have there been any other reforms or initiatives that have kind of changed the game? Well in Pennsylvania and as part of uh, technology initiatives. There was a period of time in the mid uh, 2000s, 2005, 6, 7, 8, in that time frame when the state um, made significant investment. And a lot of these things do come down to dollars and cents. When they were putting um, millions of dollars, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars, into technology as um, a tool that could be leveraged with. Reforming instruction. So, technology was to be the tool and to teach and train teachers to use technology effectively in the classroom as part of what was at the time called Classrooms for the Future. That was a Pennsylvania initiative. Uh, and at the same time, Pennsylvania was putting money into a Project 720 program, which was 720 days in a student's high school career. So, they were trying to do a little reform there. So there was a lot of monies available and probably were good economic times prior to the 2010-11 downturn in the economy. Uh, And with those kind of resources, we were able to do a lot of different things, a lot of cutting edge things and a lot of um, uh, project-based activities, just basically changing the way that instruction was done at at the high school level. Uh, And I think we did have a lot of success. I think the kids were engaged, I think, outcomes were good, I think the training was good, and that was really a significant part of it. You know, if you want to change teaching, you have to to support teachers as they try to change. Otherwise, they're going to fall back into the traditional path that they've followed for most of their career. So making change is hard, um, and it requires a lot of resources, and at the time we did. So 
computers are becoming very prevalent and putting technology in the hands of kids was a big objective and um, that was one of the big uh, changes that I saw through that period of time. Well, speaking of the change, um, with your 20 plus years and varied experience across the spectrum, it's probably safe to assume that you've seen your share of initiatives come and go over the years, um, nuances in the field, um, different performance measures and, and learning outcomes and all of these things. Um, would you say that there are any sort of underlying constants in education? And if so, what would they be? Well, I think one thing that, from my perspective as a classroom teacher, is that every day when I go into my classroom, I think this is true for most teachers, they go in and they, they want to do right by their students. They want to help them. That's what I'm missing, that, that mindset. Thank you. You've enlightened. <laughs> That's All right. Amazing. Okay, so, tomorrow's a new day, folks. Tomorrow is a new day. So I think, I think in terms of consistency, I've seen that in almost um, all the teachers that I've had opportunity to interact with in all the different schools that I've been in. Um, for the most part, teachers want to do right by their students. Um, and I think they go about it in different ways. And a lot of that has to do with their experiences in school and their trainings and the leadership that they have around them um, and what they thought was effective in terms of instruction when they were a student. So a lot of people teach like they were taught. Um, some people teach like they were taught and realize that doesn't work and so they change. But uh, I think that's kind of one consistent thing that I've noticed over the years. As far as these um, initiatives that seem to come and go, and there is, a, I think, a pendulum to some of this, um, and a lot of times things that you think were here and gone mysteriously reappear 10, 12 years later. Um, I'm not sure what the rationale is for all those things. I think some of it is um, leadership trying to find things that they think might help their teachers. I think their heart is in the right place. They want to find things that will make the education system that they're working in better. Um, when it comes to um, how these things are implemented, unfortunately I think a lot of it is a, a one and done or a shotgun approach where they come in and they, they give you a, a one day instruction on how to implement and then some of the people will go back and try to do it, and then a few of the people will not try to do any of it, and then some people will be in between. Um, but usually within a year or two, most of those initiatives kind of have faded out, um, and then the next initiative comes along. And not to be one of those um, disgruntled uh, older teachers, but at a certain point in your career, you start to see um, initiatives coming in and some of the people will say well I'll just wait this one out because in a couple of years it'll be gone and in, a, and, and in my experience that very often is true um, which is unfortunate because a lot of money gets spent on these things and people I think have the right um, uh, incentive in terms of like trying to make the schools better uh, it's just trying to be consistent and reinforce and provide support to make them become part of what happens on an everyday basis is very challenging, especially in a district like ours where we have pretty bare bones uh, support. You know, we have a full teaching staff and we have a building principal and we have an assistant principal um, and that's, you know, that's where we are. We don't have a lot of people supporting instruction outside of that. We don't have um, department chairs. We don't have teacher coaches very to, to a large degree and so you're kind of on your own and that makes it hard if you're, especially if you want to change so when, I th oh, go ahead. when I think of educational policy I think of the phrase if it's, if it's not broke don't fix it would you think do you think that our educational system is broken uh, that's an interesting question Good job, Brad. Yeah. Thanks. Like the first one. Yeah. We just, we just <laughs> really took the <laughs> Yeah, you're pretty weak on the question. <laughs> <laughs> These guys have such strong. Yeah, they must give you the, the scraps. I'm just staring my eyes all the time. I don't know that broke is the right word or, or um, 
it, it's in need of fixing. I think public education does a lot of really good things for our kids in general. I think teachers do good things for our kids. I think our administration wants good things for kids. I think people who are in education generally are doing things for the right reasons. And I think um, in that respect, it's not broken. The problem, if, I, if you want to call it that, or the thing that might be broken, is just the the, uh, um, the inability of education to adapt to things as they change. So I went to high school in 1979 to 1983. High school today, with all the changes that have happened in society and technology, um, is not a whole lot different than it was back then. You know, kids come into school, they go into classrooms, teachers talk for a lot of the time, the kids sit passively and kind of absorb a lot of it, or some of it or none of it, um, and they go about their, their business. Uh, and I'm not sure that that structure, which seems to be hard to change, um, just because of the structure as it exists, like the system is the system, you know, the pieces are in place. Making those pieces flexible so that we can do things differently is hard to do. Um, and I think part of that is it takes a huge commitment of people and resources and commitment to make that happen. It's just easier to keep going along the way we go along and change small things or bring in an initiative here or there and feel like we're doing something. And we are, but we're not dramatically changing anything. We're just kind of working around the edges. Um, so because it's not, I think, broken in the sense that it's useless, um, people aren't willing to make dramatic change because it's like good is good enough when I think we could, not we meaning us in particular, but we as an educational system could be, could be much better. And it's not that there aren't examples of it. There are. There are plenty of places across this country that do amazing things and their structure and their systems are just different. People have been willing to change them. So that kids are engaged, kids are accountable, kids are responsible, students take more of a leadership role in their learning Whereas in most traditional high schools, they're just along for the ride, trusting that what we're doing for them or giving to them or telling them is, is what they need to know and learn um, versus them being uh, more responsible for their own learning. Uh, so I'm not sure if that answered your question, but. Yeah. I, I, think, I think some of the talking about like, it's broken, not broken, there's always this fear, like the accountability. But as we're looking at like some of the numbers, like. You know, test scores haven't increased that greatly in the past 15 years. Not just here, I'm just saying across the nation, they've done comparisons. Some have gone up, some have gone down. I don't know, would people be willing to make that, I don't, why not make that change then? If things aren't, you know, seem to be improving, well, what's the harm, I guess you could say, you could argue with that. And then in the bigger picture, then what would be um, added to that? If you could give like one piece of advice for like those are, that are making these policies to so maybe to support schools to make these changes that you're, that you're thinking about? Like, what sort of advice might you give? Well, I think, I think because there are places in this country and school systems and districts um, where you're, you do see innovative approaches to education that are somewhat different than the traditional model that we're, we're pretty much all accustomed to, they're not doing it in a way that you couldn't go and see it and talk to them and learn from them, both as teachers, and you're talking about policy here, um, you know, politicians, legislators, people that are making decisions about policy and education can go and see what success looks like in a way that's very different than what they experienced as a student in public school. Uh, and, and when you go and you see these kind of things and the way the buildings basically operate in a way that's student-led in a lot of ways. Um, it changes the way you think about what can happen in education. 
and that if students have the ability to, in many ways, pick and choose their path, the engagement is going to be higher, their motivation is going to be higher, their interest levels are going to be higher, uh, and their performance and their success, like all those things will build on each other. Um, so, we, so we need to go and find those places, and they're out there, and, and try to model the rest of us after what we know is successful. And you're right, test scores kind of being flat, we do things kind of the same way, we're going to get pretty much the same results. And that's just going to continue until there is some dramatic shift in the way we approach it. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, we teach to the test, or teachers teach to the test, and if we just taught in a, in a, in a, in a way that taught kids how to think and focused on that versus specific content, they would be fine on those tests if they just had the thinking skills and the, and the reasoning skills. Um, but that's a risk a lot of teachers don't want to take. They just want to continue to kind of focus on the specific things the kids are going to be required to do on a test and then in a lot of ways teach to that, which is probably about the most miserable experience that you could have in a classroom. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, ask my students, they, they might be miserable too, I don't know. Well, could maybe, be. I'm not sure about mine either, but <laughs> um, I just think that there are opportunities and there are examples and if we decide as an educational community that, th that that's the model we want to pursue, then we could do that. But it takes people, uh, people having a willingness to change and to buy in. And because most people kind of came up through a system, and that's a system they're comfortable with, and it is, it is a huge um, system of people and infrastructure, and the challenge to move all that is difficult. And that, to some degree, is why charters have been uh, a thing that has given people, even public charters, have given different uh, people education opportunity to try things differently, approach it from a different so before we let you off the hook here, uh, this being our special election episode, yes. or you know, we're talking yes. about policy and such, um, why should people vote on Tuesday? Why should they vote on Tuesday? Wait, that's election Tuesday. That's Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> I should register. Hang on. Well, I think at the moment in this country, we have uh, a um, representative government that I think does not necessarily reflect the majority of the people simply because too many people don't vote. Uh, and I might be wrong in terms of that statement, but it would be nice to know after everybody had voted what that would look like in terms of what our leadership would be like. Uh, so I think if you want your voice heard and you want people to represent you who will stand up for your beliefs and what you, you see as the future of this country, then you should get out and vote. So that's why I would vote. <laughs> Are you running for political office? I, uh, <laughs> uh, I vote for you. You got my vote. I've never held. Oh, actually, I can't say that. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe that's another, ep another episode of the pie. <laughs> no, <laughs> Behind the curtain. No, no, there's, there's not a calling you the governor. There's no secrets. <laughs> Well, Tom, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us here on Pod for Teacher. I hope uh, we've somewhat met your expectations. I think this might be the most serious of the podcast <laughs> so far. Yeah. I don't know. Well, give give it time. We still have some more to record here. Yeah, sure. okay. We're, we're nowhere near yeah. uh, Spice up your listening audience. We time you go through all that. You're all the spice we need. Out. You're all the spice we need. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, sure I can't hold up to the uh, David Dan. <laughs> A few, a few mortals can. Yeah. Few mortals can. <laughs> there's a bar and then there's that bar. <laughs> well, when we come back, our interview with our fearless leader, the principal of Freedom Area High School, Mr. Bill Deal. This is Uncle Griff, and you're listening to Pod for Teacher. Now back to the guys. And we're back with our boss, the, the incomparable Mr. Bill Deal. I don't know what that word means. That's too fancy for me. Incomparable. Okay, How's thank that? you. Help? <laughs> Keep going. I'm not sure he knows what that means either. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Dill, thanks for joining us. Certainly, thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. First question: What are you dressing up as for Halloween? 
whatever my wife tells me to. <laughs> <laughs> what has been your best Halloween costume? Um, like in all my years, or just oh, my we're going to years. Yeah, we got to take. We got to go way back. Probably my most memorable costume was my mother dressed me up as a Hershey's Kiss one year and involved like a lot of chicken wire and aluminum foil. So it's memorable just because it was so uncomfortable. Did a lot of people lick you or try to? Uh, those are probably memories I've blocked. Okay, okay. So you had to stay away from microwaves and lightning? <laughs> <laughs> I generally try to do that. <laughs> Well, let's get let's get into it. So we're talking about the uh, the politics of public ed policy, um, and wh where it comes from, how there it's are made. politics in public ed. For, uh, apparently, oh, uh, apparently, Department of Education. I don't know stuff like that. So for any of our three listeners that don't, uh, we used to have twelve. I thought now we're down to three. <laughs> this is terrible. At least at, you this know. is terrible. Um, how long have you been in uh, in education? Uh, well, I have been. Uh, uh, an administrator now this is my ninth year as an administrator and I was a teacher for six years prior to that so this is my 15th year in public education okay so in that time I'm assuming you've seen the pendulum go this way and that way you've seen mm -hmm. fancy terms come around so I'm just curious any any trends maybe that you've noticed as far as public education and the policies are concerned what what's kind of humorous is I remember in my first principalship I was working with a teacher who had been there for probably at that point 25 odd years and I can't remember any more specifically what the initiative was but she you know she kind of sat back in the faculty meeting she was like oh I've seen this come before this is the pendulum swinging and I, I remember like wanting to reach out and choke her because <laughs> you know as the principal I was like no this is new this is great this is going to be wonderful just to clarify you didn't choke no her. I did okay, not there we go um, right. it's a very gentleman <laughs> but but as I look back she was exactly right because I've seen I've started to sing I've started to see the pendulum swing back now where it's like oh as much as I wanted that to not be true um, it certainly is true that, that the, those pendulums do swing so we're taught you know in our you know teacher prep programs and you know in our professional development here and anywhere uh, that um, like learning objectives need to be, you know, one of the first parts of the planning process and things like that. Um, like from your perspective as an administrator, what would you say is the most valuable asset to student learning, uh, just, just from your perspective and experience? Well, I, I think from my perspective and from my experience, and, and I hope that this comes through in, in the work that we do here as a faculty, is what is good about teaching really hasn't changed. Um, there are core fundamental things to quality teaching that have been the core fundamentals of quality teaching for years, and I think the research is very clear on that. So whether you call it an objective or an essential question or a goal really doesn't matter as long as there's a clear destination that you're driving toward. Um, one of the things that we've obviously talked about a lot here is using techniques and tools to engage students. We don't want students just to kind of sit and, and be treated as sponges, soaking up all the material that teachers are spewing at them. We want them to be engaged and involved in the learning process. Again, it doesn't matter what we call that, it doesn't matter what the buzzword is, that's a key fundamental to quality education. So that's, that's where I've kind of evolved from as an administrator is just seeing that those core fundamentals have remained valid through years of research. And just to show I do know some words, you don't want people just to pontificate upon the students. See? See, I can, I got buzzwords. Yes, I, uh, pontification <laughs> should be left strictly to administrators. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we're not going to comment on that right now. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Wise man. Wise man. Now, currently, it looks like our state is maybe moving away from focusing a lot on the keystones, putting mm -hmm. so much pressure. Um, a certain bill, I forget what it's called right offhand right now, but that the government may be signing. So, like graduation requirements. Now, it's not just mm -hmm. keystones. could be internships, acceptance to different colleges or SAT scores, et cetera. Um, what would you like to see in terms of this process, in terms of like graduation? I'll just throw in my two cents, too. I don't know if this is part of it. But if we're moving from keystones, maybe it'd be fair then that schools shouldn't be judged solely on those scores either then, like the report cards that we get, teacher evaluations, that maybe there should be something else. But that's a, maybe a side note. But anyway, the whole process itself, I'm just curious your take, your thoughts on it from your perspective. Uh, 
I'm encouraged that the state is starting to have an understanding that they shouldn't focus solely on keystone exams. But I think that's only a very small step in the right direction because the way the, way the current discussion is structured, in my opinion, is yes, we're moving away from keystone exams, but we're still relying heavily on standardized measures. So we're still relying on, okay, maybe not keystone exams, but we want to look at SAT or ACT. Well, we're not relying on keystone exams, but maybe we want to look at AP scores or NOCTI scores. I like the fact that we're broadening what we're looking at. I'm still very uncomfortable by the fact that it's largely based on standardized tests and standardized assessments because Again, I think there's a, a growing body of research that shows that those things don't really accurately reflect necessarily the quality of teaching and learning that's taking place in a school. Um, uh, for many of those measures, it's true of the Keystone exams, and, and it, it's probably true of a lot of the other standardized measures, is that one of the strongest correlations remains socioeconomics. So we need to find a way to go beyond those measures to really get a better understanding of what's going on inside the walls of a school. Uh, and that's very hard to do on a standardized statewide basis because so many schools and the communities that they serve are wildly different from place to place. And that kind of kind of speaks to what you know this episode has been about and what we talked about earlier um, with about in, in regards to you know the folks that that shape some of this policy from the top down. Um, you know, most of this, these policies are largely shaped by politicians, and as we learned, few of them have any sort of background in education at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, from somebody who is in the game, directly tied to the the outcomes of these policies, if you could share one piece of advice or some feedback to those who who shape the policy from the top down, what would it be? <laughs> Come live a, a week in our lives. Um, I would love to have those people come and, and not, don't just make the hour visit for the cameras. Come and spend a week here to try, to try to truly understand what it is that we do and how we do it. Because I believe firmly a lot of the work that we do here that is high quality work that really positively impacts our kids is also work that's not going to show up on a standardized test. It's work that's not going to be easily quantified on some kind of measure, but yet it's so important, and it's work that we're doing because it's unique to our community, it's unique to our students, and it's unique to the personality that we have as a district. So I would love to have politicians and some of the lawmakers come and really truly spend enough time here to understand what it is that we're doing and truly understand our population because I think a lot of a lot of their initiatives while maybe well-intentioned uh, are coming from a place of ignorance where they're not really understanding what it is that's happening in schools so kind of like to piggyback off that then the idea is as an administrator I'm not in that position obviously like do you feel like yourself I don't know is it a tough balancing act do you feel like, I don't know if it's like curtailed or boxing like with what's expected from the top down to try and also to make sure that teachers are still able to kind of push the limit and push the envelope and you know, growing their students but also mm -hmm. you know you still have all these things you know, we still have to meet all these you know regulations and policies so how do you I don't know in that position <laughs> I, that's not, I don't know I don't envy that position <laughs> I'm just curious how how that kind of plays out no it, it is a tough balancing act because on the one hand you know that that there are those external measures through which you're judged and through which the public judges you um, you know, as, as many shortcomings as I think there are to standardized test scores, I know that that's something that people look at when they're looking to buy property in our community or when they're looking uh, at a place to move. They look at those, so there's still some basis of judgment there, whether or not I think it's unfair. So I definitely feel the push and I feel the challenge to see those scores increase or to do better. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, you know, we're going to be a, a school that spends a lot of time and energy preparing students for the test. We're just going to become a test preparation mill. Um, I don't think that's quality education. So, you know, I want to stand in opposition to that uh, while still saying, okay, what are the things that we can do to improve those scores so that we have a better public-facing image so that's part of it. The other part of it is, as an administrator, I feel a real um, 
a real sense of urgency around how can we do better at publicizing the things that we do well that aren't test score related? How do we let the public know all the other good things that we're doing uh, in schools? And I think that's an onus on a lot of us as educators. We know that we're doing great things. We don't do a great job of sharing those great things with, with our broader community. Um, final question, and speaking of sharing things with the broader community, um, are you prepared to replace Nate, Brad, and I on the staff whenever we hit it really big with the podcast and have to move to Hollywood? There, there is going to be no replacement for the, the three of you. So. And I appreciate, too, the fact that you use the expression, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've used this in an earlier episode, and we're really curious, the first person to actually do that. Like, I got this bathtub, I need to change the water. Oh, there's a baby in it, I forgot. I and, then he, and then the guy comes back. In retrospect, maybe we maybe we shouldn't have <laughs> maybe we should have thrown the skimmer in there first. I don't know. <laughs> well, Mr. Deal, thank you for joining us on Thanks Pod for, for Teacher. Um, thank you very much. When we come back, our exit ticket. Pod for Teacher is sponsored by Dinkles, everyone's favorite marching band footwear since 1986. What they lack in fashion sense, they certainly make up for with the hilarity of their namesake. I mean, come on now. That guy was either a bully among bullies or a comic genius. You decide. So for today's exit ticket, we want you to think about this. Just because everyone was once a student does not inherently make one an expert in education. Exactly. That'd be like me, a teacher, who's gone to the dentist twice a year since I've had teeth, drafting legislation that would prohibit dental schools and dentists from using the metal hooks to scrape plaque just because my experience as a patient tells me that I don't like it when they do that. And since I've been a patient, I know what's best for me. Or just because I drive a car, that doesn't mean I should do mechanical work. Trust me. If that was the case, then I'm up a creek. <laughs> and just because we have a podcast doesn't mean we should be the next Kelly Ripa. Ultimately, we think you get our point. I'm winking into the microphone. <laughs> That's all we have for today. We'd like to thank our guests, Tom Hickey and Mr. Bill Deal, for joining us. Follow us on Twitter at PodForTeacher. You can follow me at A Fitzpatrick CJE. You can follow Nate at Enland Jelly. Please subscribe as a listener on whichever platform you're hearing this podcast and don't forget to rate. But most importantly, don't forget to vote. November 6th is the big day and polls will be open in Pennsylvania from 7 a.m. until 8 p.m. Make your voice heard. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>